I'm your host, Julia Gerber, and you're listening to Science-ish. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Uh, Science-ish is all about talking about science fiction and having fun just talking about all these different movies and books that we really freaking love and geek out over and sometimes the science is real sometimes it's not and it's kind of just made up from someone's head but we still enjoy the story but you know for some of us nerds out there we really like to know what goes into the the research and the planning behind some of these really great books and movies in the science fiction genre. And so we're going to really dig into that in this podcast and talk about what is real and what is not. In this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most classic and mind-blowing sci-fi movies since The Matrix, Interstellar. Interstellar starts off in the year 2070, on a small farm in Colorado where a second dust bowl, called the Blight, has swept over the entire world. Corn is the last viable crop on Earth, and everyone is struggling with starvation in a slowly dying planet. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down. Worry about our place in the dirt. Matthew McConaughey stars with a lead role as Joseph Cooper. He's a father, an engineer, and a former NASA pilot who is now a farmer, like almost everybody else. He lives on the farm with his son, his father-in-law, and his daughter, Murphy, played by Mackenzie Foy, and then as Jessica Chastain when she's older. After a few strange gravity anomalies occur, Coop and Murph go to these random coordinates and discover that NASA, previously thought to have been disbanded, was actually still secretly running. Then they talk to this guy called Professor John Brand, and he tells them that they just happened to stumble across the most well-kept secret in the world. going to be viable by the time Earth's generation reaches adulthood, and that the only solution for this is to leave Earth and search for a new home for humanity. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. Later on in the movie, they talk about the Lazarus missions, where they sent 12 volunteers into a wormhole to explore 12 different worlds that potentially had life and see which ones were suitable for habitation. But the whole first half of the movie is setting up the plot and showing Earth and the people that live there and really giving you a reason to care about the people and hope that a solution is reached for them. Then they go to space 
they take off and it's all very tense and dramatic and they have no idea what they're going to find. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. On a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being absolutely, completely not plausible, 10 being very realistic, where would you place Interstellar on that scale? I would say that the science was ambitious and the science that they tackled, black holes, wormholes, relativistic time dilation, I mean they went all out for that and so I'd give it an 8 or 9 out of 10 on this. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's very impressive. Well, they had a real advisor, a real science advisor, who was also executive producer. And his, uh, his name is uh, Professor Kip Thorne, and he's a friend of mine, and, and, and he, he's an expert on Einstein's general theory of relativity. That was Neil deGrasse Tyson, talking to Fox 5 News about Interstellar, which is notoriously well known for its careful care and detail and accuracy when it came to the actual scientific concepts in the film. He mentions Professor Kip Thorne, who literally wrote the book about science behind Interstellar, and it is actually called The Science of Interstellar. And Thorne was the science consultant for the film, as well as the executive producer. As Neil Tyson said, it really took the movie to the next level as a science fiction film because of this. Like, they worked together on it, him and Christopher Nolan, and they talked about it for months. They planned this for months. And in an interview, Christopher Nolan said that he would come to Kip Thorne asking, can he do this? Can he do this? Like, light speed travel. And uh, Thorne would be like, no, that is not possible. Stop asking. <laughs> and they would just go at it and on and on for months. And one of those things, like light speed travel that Christopher Nolan was so passionate about and he really wanted it in the film and Thorne was like well there's no real way to do this and but but they figured it out they like well we'll have them in hibernation sleep pods and you know would just they they always figured out a way around these problems with while making it really scientifically accurate which really improved this film as an accurate science fiction movie. And even though some of the science was made a little more dramatic, like the tidal wave on that first planet they visited, which wouldn't have necessarily physically gone down the way that the movie portrayed, it, everything was done for cinematic effect. And yet there's a great balance of fact as well as the drama in Interstellar. Arguably, one of the most profound scenes in the science fiction genre is when they are rocketing through space 
and they get to the bulk. And the matter, the very essence of space, alters before everyone's eyes. Cooper's team, who's in space, watching this through the centimeters of glass as space becomes physical. It looks like you can reach out and touch it. And then they have that experience with that other gravitational anomaly. And then um, Brand, Dr. Brand is like, oh, that was first contact. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Gravity rules everything and is the basis for practically everything that we know. It's how everything works. Then Interstellar comes along and says, hey, you can also use gravity to manipulate time and space. And it's just absolutely crazy. At first, the characters and myself as a viewer thought that it was aliens that saw Earth struggling and decided to help Earth out and give them a wormhole. But near the end of the movie, you realize that everything that happened was a loop of cause and effect, initiated solely by people. Gravity. This is the message. Affirmative. Throughout the whole movie, gravity is the one thing that affects everything. It's there in the beginning, when Murph thinks there's a ghost in her room and it leads her and Coop to NASA. Then it's there in Brand's plan A of getting off the Earth in the first place, saving humanity by lifting the International Space Station that they had built on the ground and then taking it into space. And then it's even there in everything pertaining to the wormhole and the time dilation that makes the main characters lose seven years of time for every hour that they spend on one planet near Gargantua. that starts to become more fiction than science is the wormhole. You see, wormholes and black holes are different. Black holes are like funnels in space. There's a big hole on one end, but it comes down to a smaller point at the very bottom, known as a singularity. And then somewhere in the middle in that funnel is another point called the event horizon, which is basically the point of no return. But if you put two black holes together, you get a wormhole. Which becomes more like a tunnel, a shortcut from one end of the universe to another. But the problem with that is wormholes do not naturally occur in space. As Sarah Napton wrote in her article, The Science of Interstellar, Factor Fiction. She wrote, 
They can exist theoretically, but no one knows how they could be held open so that someone could travel through it. It's extremely unlikely that they could exist naturally in the universe. It would take huge mass like a neutron star to create a bend in time which could push into the bulk and meet up with another such tunnel on the other side. So far, nothing has shown any signs of doing that. In Interstellar, Cooper surmises that the wormhole, which has been found near Saturn, has been put there by an advanced civilization. However, it is highly unlikely anyone will ever find a way to bend time and space and then rip a hole in it so that it could meet on the other side. Then, to add on to that thought, Thorne added in an interview that he doubts the laws of physics permit traversable wormholes. If they can exist, he doubts very much that they can form naturally in the astrophysical universe. Neil deGrasse Tyson explains this a little bit better in his interview with Fox 5 News. So we, we think we understand the mathematics and physics of wormholes. We can write down the equations to create one. But we don't know how to make one otherwise. We don't have the control over matter and energy. Because what is a wormhole? It is a particular distortion of space and time that allows you to sort of pass through a tear, a portal from where you are in this part of the universe to another part, without actually having to take the whole journey. wormholes and black holes and what their role was in the movie but what about the end with the tesseract that was probably the second most mind-blowing part of interstellar that i think a lot of people don't really still understand to this day we're going to listen to a little bit more of that interview with neil degrasse tyson and fox 5 news all right this idea of this tesseract where you can alter things that have already happened in your lifetime. Can we do that? Yeah, so no, so you didn't ask that correctly, okay? <laughs> you, you, you were very human about it, and you said alter things that happened. The interesting thing about the Tesseract, a word that has gained some currency with the, the Avenger series, because there's right. a Tesseract with Thor and people moving in and out of it. All right, so the Tesseract, mathematically, is a higher dimensional object. Well, if you have access to a higher dimension, it means you are no longer bound to where you are in time. We, though we can move left and right, and up and down, and forward and back, we have access to X, Y, and Z at will. But you are a prisoner of the present, forever transitioning between the past and the future. So that's the fourth dimension, X, Y, Z, and time. In a higher dimension, you can step back and look at your entire timeline and access it no differently from how you just walk around in a room. So the question, can you go back in time to change something, that's not even the right question. Once you see your entire timeline, you are always being born. You are always dying. You are always in school. You are always asleep. These things are always happening, and you just access them at will. So in the Tesseract, he's not changing the past. That always happened. We saw it happen. Jessica Chastain, as a child, saw the books come out. It's a mystery why. We find out why. Because 
Her father does go into space, does go into the black hole, does access the Tesseract to try to tell her to have him not go. But here's the weird part. As if it wasn't already weird enough. He did go. He had to go. Otherwise, he couldn't be telling her that he shouldn't go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, right? Oh, my brain hurts. No, right, watch what happens. Yeah, so, <laughs> so think about this. Think about this. If she did interpret his signals correctly and managed to prevent him from going, then he would have never given her the signals in the first place to tell him to not go. So that entire series of events had to unfold exactly as portrayed. And so you're wrong to think that you're gonna go back and change something in a timeline that is already there. There were no aliens. At least, not any trying to leave messages for Murph or controlling the Tesseract. Coop says as much in the movie. They didn't bring us here to change the past. They didn't bring us here at all. So essentially, the end of Interstellar is all about Cooper accessing the fourth dimension, and Neo couldn't have explained the Tesseract more beautifully. It is essentially where time and space literally meet in a physical and interactable dimension. Now, we get what it is, but I think an even bigger question for Interstellar and the Tesseract is how Coop and Tars got in there in the first place. At one moment, he's ejecting himself into Gargantua and saying goodbye to Dr. Brand and, you know, drama of that part of the movie. And then in the next, he's in this new bizarre space. Then, after they get the data that they needed for the gravitational theory, and then they give it to Murph, the Tesseract starts to fold in on itself when they're done. And they escape, but then he ends up conveniently floating outside of Saturn, just as the spaceship with everyone from Earth happens to be coming by. That's a little bit on the side of less science and more fiction, but you know what? It's a good movie, so we'll let it slide. The director Christopher Nolan's idea was that they, the supposed aliens, are actually descendants of humanity who have learned to live in five dimensions and reach through space and time. They put the wormhole there and they created the Tesseract. So yes, there's no aliens and the whole Tesseract thing's a little weird, but the thought process behind it is that it was people and that time is always going and it's always accessible in this fourth dimension. The part where Cooper leaves the ship to save Brand and sacrifices himself gets a little weird as far as real science and fiction goes. So when Cooper's falling into the hole, Gargantua, everyone expects him to die. As black holes aren't really something you want to go exploring in, the massive force of the black hole would stretch you out as you fell through it and rip you into pieces by a process called spaghettification. The black hole would literally noodleify you. But from Bran's perspective, he'd just drift away, drifting, 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 and then he would stop. 
you kind of sort of freeze in space as he reached the event horizon that we talked about earlier. It would look like he just kind of stopped mid-space, but he keeps going. It just looks like that because that is the point where not even light escapes and you can't see beyond it. Gargantua, for God's sake. And God knows where it's taking him. He just got this tesseract collapsed on him. Why is Cooper alive? Even though it's kind of a long shot, especially with Gargantua's size, while previously scientists thought black holes would destroy anything and everything that goes through them, they now think that some could be gentle. To what extent, I have no idea. But it's possible that Gargantua could be one of these gentle, huge black holes that allows safe passage inside of them. This also kind of makes sense, because Gargantua supposedly has an entire solar system of its own just sitting inside of it, with 12 potentially habitable planets, you know, just right there. But essentially, that's why, in the movie, explanation-wise, that Cooper does not die. This is probably one of those gentle black holes, and that also makes sense for the travel between the two. Now, I don't know if there can be gentle wormholes, but by following the same logic of two black holes making a wormhole, and then black holes being gentle, maybe they both have to be gentle, maybe they don't, but when they combine, they make a wormhole that's passable, and everyone lives and super happy and fine when they pass through it. Science fiction logic. One more thing that I would like to discuss about Interstellar that doesn't really have anything to do with science, but it's important is the theme of love throughout this entire movie. Beyond all of the action and the other mind-blowing concepts in Interstellar, there's a defining moment for Brand towards the end of the film where she talks about love being more powerful and profound than anything else. And in a movie like this, where the characters face some pretty complex and science-heavy space stuff, It's pretty amazing that there's a moment that we focus again on humanity and what drives us all. You know, they're rocketing through space to save humankind from Earth, their dying planet. And throughout the movie, there's these little reminders that, you know, we're also capable of love and compassion. And that's probably why these brave people go out into the unknown through a scary-ass gargantuan black hole it's human it's humanity it's what makes us us love isn't something we invented it's observable powerful it has to mean something love has meaning yes social utility social bonding child rearing we love people who have died where's the social utility in that 
none. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. In an interview with Anne Hathaway, she's asked about her character, Dr. Brand, and her personal journey as a character through the movie as it progressed. Yeah, when I first read the screenplay, uh, I didn't totally understand my character, and I didn't for quite some time. Without revealing anything, she something happens to her in the movie that I, I was just thinking about, and I thought, wow, that's, that's one of those things that changes you. And then all of a sudden, I, she made sense to me as someone who goes through a journey, and I believe the journey she goes from is, uh, is arrogance and fear to, uh, to humility and openness. And just like Jessica said, which is a beautiful answer, I think anybody who has the courage to go on that journey is somebody very deserving of respect. And though she doesn't really go into detail, I feel like Anne came to have a healthy respect and resonance with her character by the end. And just watching that scene is almost heartbreaking. It makes the movie, it's, it makes the movie so much better. But the theme of humanity and love is actually more reoccurring than just that particular moment. And there's also Cooper's family that he leaves behind in an attempt to save them and the rest of Earth. And then there's Matt Damon's character that waited so long without anyone waiting there to die that he basically lost all of his humanity. He, he does everything in his power to escape and get back. Not a lot of science fiction movies really portray the message of love and intimacy like Interstellar does. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's lots of uh, movies in this genre that have amazing plots, amazing character development, and, you know, they're, they're classics and they're super popular for a reason. But I think Interstellar deserves a call-out for achieving and talking about and portraying all the things that they do all in one movie. It's a long-ass movie, but it's a good one. parts of the movie, like the Dust Bowl Blight and the, the actual 12 viable planets. But we, we covered the main parts, and hopefully you guys all have a better understanding and appreciation for wormholes and space-time relativity, and for the movie as a whole. It really digs into a lot of great topics and is a sci-fi classic for a reason. We want to give a special thanks to the Interstellar cast and their great work as well as all the sources that we used to bring this episode to you. For future episodes, be sure to tune in every week on Friday at 5 p.m. and get hyped for our next movie, The Martian. At least this one. Matt Damon's not a bad guy. (laughs) See you next week. Peace. My name's Julia Gerber, your host, and... 
I love science fiction. Dun, 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 Is that how it goes? Dun, 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 d